Well, good morning. <clears throat> you may remember last week, uh, I talked about how uh, I fell and I twisted my ankle. Right? And someone asked me, uh, how are you doing? I said, well, I was trying to be funny. I said, well, the bones on the inside and the ligaments on the inside of my body are given out, but at least my skin is intact. Well, this week, I uh, dropped a knife on my foot and severed a tendon in my right foot. So left ankle, right foot, and uh, I'm kind of gimping around a little bit. But I'm here, and God is good. And uh, we're going to talk about Nehemiah. So what else, what else could go right? That's awesome. So when, when stuff like this happens, like when things go wrong and something else goes wrong, and then something else goes wrong, but what happens to me, and first service confirmed it happened to them too, so that's good. That makes me feel safer being vulnerable. <clears throat> I tend to uh, like look inside myself and place blame or just say, you're just so clumsy or <clears throat> you're just a loser or you're too fat. That's why this happened. Or you're just too distracted all the time. And then all the accusations that came against me when I was a kid, when kids were teasing me or, or someone said something to me out of anger or I frustrated with someone, they all come flooding back and it's like this army that builds up and starts screaming at me. Um, this is a psychological thing that I've learned is called ants, automatic negative thoughts. And we are programmed that way to automatically think negative things, specifically about ourselves when things happen. We tend to look at things that happen to us and look inside of ourselves and say, it is my fault or my flaw that caused this suffering. And uh, that can lead to this spiraling of this self-doubt, self-criticism. It can lead to depression and anxiety and fear. You start to devalue yourself as a, as a person because you just start believing these negative things, like this thing that happened. Like, I hurt my ankle because I tripped because I'm a clumsy person and I'm overweight and I shouldn't be overweight. And, or I dropped this thing and because I knocked a knife on the floor because, um, you know, pick a flaw I have and I can figure out a way to blame it, right? <clears throat> and we have, as we, are, as we are trying to live out our faith, we have these types of oppositions against us where a random thing can create this huge barrier, this huge um, opposition of us trying to be who God wants us to be and who we believe we can be. Because we all believe that we can be whole and we are good and that there's goodness there, but then all these things happen and come at us. We all want to be... <clears throat> Like if I asked you some questions, you'd probably say, yeah, how many of you want to be more kind than you are? How many of you want to be more generous than you are? Right? How many of you want to be more self-controlled than you are? Right? How many of you, want, right? We all believe we can be better. We all want to be better. And that's in us and that's good. And God put that in us. That is our, our longing for heaven is inside of us. And the fact that we want to get better is proof that there is something out there that we can uh, keep aspiring to. 
And then when we hit these oppositions and these struggles, it just can crush that. Because even though we want to be self-controlled, we just can't say no to one more episode of that show at two in the morning. Or we can't say no. Ooh, that got some reaction. Ooh, sorry. Back off on that for a second. All right. All right. Okay. What we see here in Nehemiah, in this story, uh, we're in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The series is called 52, and it's rebuilding the foundation of our faith or reconstructing the foundation of our faith. And what we're seeing here is, is Ezra and Nehemiah tells a story about how um, God invites his people to come back to him. And that's true for all of us, those of us who stray from God. He's always inviting us to come back. But then the reality is come back and there's some building to do, right? That's true for us too. Let's rebuild or let's build, let's lay a foundation here. And then we see in Nehemiah, he starts to build the, so they build the, sorry, they build the altar and the temple, and now they're starting to build the city under Nehemiah's calling. And so Nehemiah is starting to build the city, the walls of the city. You'll see behind me, there's bricks on the ground that represent kind of the building bricks. There's swords on the wall, and there's a trumpet on the wall. That's part of what the story is of Nehemiah. It's all part of it. And so just as Nehemiah is going to build the city that's going to fortify the gates around the, the temple, which is around the altar, right? And all of these things represent the way God's people connect to God, right? So you could see how us personally, how do we connect to God? There's this direct overlay. We are the temple. We are living in the world of opposition. When we are claiming the promises of God and believing the promises of God, we are building the foundation of the temple in our life. And so there is an invitation to us from God to always, always come back and build. But then we see in Nehemiah, there's this huge connection to there is opposition, and it comes from all sides. So uh, in Nehemiah, we see... We're going to talk through chapters 3 and chapter 4, or chapters 4, or 3 through 6. We're going to go through it. Um, and I'm going to kind of highlight it and navigate it, narrate it a little bit, and bring the whole points, because we can't read the whole thing. And we wouldn't want to, because part of it is a whole bunch of names and assignments. So he lists all these names of all these people. And what I love about that, just anecdotally, what I love about that is this indication, these are names that none of us have ever heard of. Most of, most of these names we don't know. They're not referenced anywhere else in history. But it is the people who put their hand to do the work of God. And, and that is just, I just take from that that um, we may not know these people, but God sees them. God knows them. The work that we do that no one sees, God knows. And if I look back and tell the story of 11 years of church in, in this area, I would have to list names joyfully. I, I would like, we can't. I can't forget that person. We can't forget what they did. We can't forget this work. We can't forget this person's decision. We can't forget there's just, it's too important. So no matter what you do for God and his kingdom, it counts, it matters. 
someone is keeping track. And that's a God who loves you. You know, to me, that's encouraging. Um, one of the things that we, as a, we believe that uh, the parallel for us here, why this story relates to us personally, is that we believe that those who follow Jesus are God's people. So in the Old Testament, when it refers to God's people, uh, we can look at that and go, well, that applies to us too as God's people. Now, I'm not talking about like we don't replace the Jews as a chosen people. I'm just saying we identify our purpose, our identity, the core of who we are. We are God's people. And if you're following Jesus, you're God's people. That means that you have God's mission and God's purpose. You have, God, you have the inheritance of God's promises in your life. That's what it means to be God's people. So we, we inherit God's promises and we adopt God's purposes. Now we live in a world that is doing not God's purposes, right? The world is, and when I say world, I'm talking about the systems around us, the values of the things around us, and inside of our own hearts, the desires we have that are contradictory to the kingdom of God. And that's a wrestling that we all do, that we all have. In our church, we try to structure this. Every staff member has two components to their job description. Um, one is called in-reach. The other is called outreach. Um, we as a church, we, we believe that we want to, when we look at Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 12, the way Paul describes what a church is and does, it's a community that comes together and shares in the the, in, in life together and shares in bearing the burden of a mission together, but also of a caring for one another. And so there's an in-reach component of caring for one another, of being um, God's church as a people. So there's a commitment to each other. There's a connection to each other. We're all connected by the love of Jesus in a place, in a time for a specific purpose. And Jesus says, when you gather and you love one another, they will know you are mine. So our love for one another leads to the second component, which is outreach. Our love for one another is a testimony of the truth of who God is, the way we treat each other, the way we care for each other. That's why in the last few years, this has been a real stain on the church, the division that's happened in the church. For some reason, we haven't been able to elevate unity over a mask. That's sad. That's a failure for the church. Unity is what we're called to. We're called to bear each other's burdens. We're called to be considerate of each other's fears and insecurities and love each other through the process. And so I'm very proud of Village Church and the way we've navigated it. But I mean the church as a whole in, in the world. There's been such division. Um, when we are unified though when we love one another we can do the outreach part and the way we do outreach we, do, we, we invite people to activities we, we, just, we believe that we are here to share the love of Jesus with the loved of Jesus and who are the loved of Jesus? your neighbors your family your friends, yourself and your enemies they're all loved by Jesus. 
And our job is to share that. We get to tell the truth to people about God's love for them. And when we are healthy, we can do that. Everyone has a role to play in doing that. And we all come at faith. We're all coming from different perspectives and different starting points with different issues and different brokenness and different quirks, different fears, different anxieties, different mistakes in our past. We're all coming at this from different places. So we as a church have to be gracious and patient with each other. And when we do that, we're empowered to do the outreach. Because I don't know about you, I'm really taken by this train of thought. Like, I can think of a dozen times in my life where I've said, boy, if I didn't have Jesus, I don't know how I would have gotten through that. And then I look around this region and realize, depending on the survey, 70 to 90% of the people in our community don't know Jesus. How do they handle that? Well, we're seeing a rise in addiction. We're seeing a rise in escapism with pornography and, and binge-watching things and just video games. And we're just seeing a rise in people disengaging from society to escape and cope. I know that with the power of Jesus, I can face my oppression. I can face my opposition. And with the power of Jesus in community, man, I feel like there's nothing we can't do. And I want that for my neighbors, those who God loves. So we have this multi-pronged approach. And the third thing we talk about is upreach, inreach, outreach, and upreach. Upreach is when we all come together and we are all reminded and encouraged that God is on the throne of what we're doing. And we lean on the promises of God to give us strength to endure the opposition. And what we're going to see is in Nehemiah, he has opposition. It almost seems like the enemy has a, a similar strategy where there is, a, there is opposition coming from many different angles and approaches trying to stop God's people from doing God's purposes in their life. So in Nehemiah, we see these different, um, different angles of opposition. One of them is, the first one we'll talk about is this opposition from without. So this opposition from the outside. And we see this in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard it, they re- they, it grieved them exceedingly that there had come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Like, they were exceedingly grieved. Your version may say angry. Like, they were angry that Nehemiah had come to seek the welfare of the nation of Israel. Now, these people had moved into the region and they'd overtaken the area, right? And so there was this threat to their power and threat to their, um, their position in, in, in society. And so this, this opposition came from without, from these two leaders. They were um, persistent throughout this whole section. You'll see how persistent they were in their opposition to Nehemiah and the work that he was doing. Um, Here's some things they did to set out to stop Nehemiah as they set out to stop Nehemiah. Um, The first thing they did is they opposed him with ridicule. They started to make fun of him. What are you doing, silly? That's a dumb thing you're trying to do. 
They laughed us. They laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing you do? Do you rebel against the king? Nia's response was basically, um, we're taking direction from God. And the irony here is he, wa- he was in line with the king. He did have permission of the king. But they were challenging his very purpose, his mission, the legi- le- legitimacy of what he's trying to do. The second way the enemies opposed God's people was just public mockery and shaming. Um, when they got to the point of building the gates in chapter 4, there was this another surge of opposition that came. Um, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish, seeing that they are burned? Chapter 4, verse 2. Uh, and then in verse 3, it is, Im- is it, Im- it is impossible to build on top of the pile of rubbish. The rocks underneath, having been burned, would split and cause the weakened wall to fall. Tobiah, standing next to Sanballat, added to the insult by declaring that any wall the Jews built would be so weak that if a fox weighing just a few pounds walked on it, the structure would collapse. Like this, they just start questioning their intelligence. What you're doing is dumb. What you're doing isn't going to work. What you're trying to do. And I don't know about you, but I've tried to rebuild my life in one where I'm following Jesus. And those people who were connected to my old life and were very comfortable with me being who I used to be were asking me these exact same questions. What is this religion thing you're doing? What is this God thing you're doing? What, and then the accusations of, of how dumb it is. And then there's this, the weird twist of, you know, there's a better way to do whatever you're trying to do. And um, you're a fool for believing in God. Like those are the types of things. We moved our family from Washington to Oregon to help start churches. I left my career in IT after 17 years to help start churches in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, it was my calling. And I heard every one of these angles of opposition I heard. And what we'll see here is you hear it from the least expected places too. I don't know about you, if you're trying to live out your faith, but maybe you have a family or friends or community that doesn't follow Jesus, they think you're weird. Um, Let them. Let them. Because what Nehemiah does here, the way he gets the courage to keep going is he keeps calling upon the promises that God made him. He's He's saying, I am God's people. I inherit God's promises of God's people. I have a purpose to do God's will. And he kept coming back to that very thing. You're going to see all the opposition that, he, that came against him. And he kept coming back to that very thing. I am God's people. There are promises that God made me. As I do this mission, he will be with me. That's his, that's his response. And when the mockery came, I love his response here. There's no record of him even addressing the mockery. Because the stupid accusations, this is what one of my mentors told me about being a pastor. He said, there's going to be some really stupid accusations that come at you. And what you do is if you, if you grab those weapons that are thrown at you and you pick them up and throw them back, you've just given them more weapons. And what they tend to do is sharpen them and then throw them again. Like, 
That's metaphorically true in very many ways. If you've been a leader, if you've been a parent of a teenager, like, like this is the type of stuff that happens when, um, when you're leading something. And, and here, let me anecdotally talk about this too. When, when you are trying to do anything meaningful and you're trying to lead people to do anything meaningful, you're asking people to change. You're asking people to rearrange their priorities. And you're asking people to elevate something new in priority and effort and energy and focus over something that already exists. And what happens is that thing that already exists, it fights back. It fights for survival. And here's what should scare us. We talked a few weeks ago about leadership and self-deception, the self-betrayal, the self, the way we can lie to ourselves. This should scare us because inside of ourselves, we will go nuclear to defend comfort. We will, in our minds and our hearts, we will go to the gossip chain. We will destroy the thing that's threatening our God. And one of the clear examples that happens all the time in the church is money. When we talk about what Jesus says about money, the way, when I say stuff like, you don't own anything, you just manage stuff while you're on earth. And your measure before God is, did you manage that in a way that's in line with God's kingdom? That's as simple that's, that's God's perspective of money. You don't own anything. It's not yours, right? If you're struggling with money, whether you have it or not, it's probably because it's becoming a little God in your life and it's threatening. And when you start to try to submit that, or if I, as a preacher, am standing up here saying, this is what Jesus says about money, um, you may be a place in your faith where you couldn't say that Jesus is wrong, but you could say the preacher's wrong, right? So, so the preacher gets villainized, the church becomes this one church, like you just start telling people, yeah, I went there once, all they talked about was money. I went there once, and all they talked about was money. That's like the Yogi Bear thing about the restaurant, like uh, nobody goes to that restaurant anymore because there's too many people there. <clears throat> so we will go nuclear. We will, we will attempt to destroy someone, and that should scare us because that can ruin friendships, relationships. You could ruin people's ministry or, or, or reputation because there's a hard truth that you're not willing to accept, and there's, a, there's a, uh, a kingdom inside of you that is being threatened, and it will fight back. And this isn't just spiritual. This is psychologically true. It's called self-deception. It starts with self-betrayal, and we all do it. And that should give us pause because the monster that we fear is inside of us. We all have that capacity. So what Nehemiah does, though, with those accusations that come at him that are personal, that are questioning his integrity, his intelligence, he doesn't address them. He claims the promises of God and moves on and continues building but he's more wise. He starts preparing better. I love that. The last thing Sambalot and his cohorts do is they try to create a conspiracy near the wall's completion. Um, they tried to create a coup and have him overtaken. They tried to trick him into like leaving his post and now it's gone from mocking to public shaming now it's attempted murder. Like they want to get him out so they can kill him. 
Like, that's the nuclear option. And here's what Nehemiah does to prepare. He asked the people to pray. And then he set a security guard team, a security team, a watch team, to watch day and night. He prepared. Enemy is there. It's real. It's a threat. We're not going to stop working. We're going to prepare. So behind me, you see the stones and the sword and the trumpet. Like They dedicated themselves. The first thing that, that Nehemiah appointed before, I skipped this part, but he appointed worshipers, those who de- to declare the promises of God to the people to encourage people to to declare the promises of God as their strength. And then he gave them swords. And there's this beautiful section about how with one hand they were building and the other hand they were defending. If you're going to do anything meaningful in life, if you're going to try to change or grow, there is opposition and there is a a dual effort of building and defending that comes with it. So Nehemiah prepares for that, and he ordered half of them to, to be prepared to fight with their weapons while the other half built a wall. It's beautiful. The other way, so that's the opposition from without, and then there's opposition from within that we already talked about, the automatic negative thoughts, the ability to self-deceive, right? We have that. In the story of Nehemiah, the, operation, the other angle of the opposition from within is others that you think are on your team. Right? So he started to get people complaining and whining and like whining about things like, uh, you know, we can't pay our mortgage or we have to take out loans on our property to be able to pay things. And, and what's this going to do to our long-term impact and the health of our families? And they started to get all these excuses. And this is why I just call them excuses because some of these are, would be real fears. It took 52 days we're, we're like at day 20 in this story of 52 days. It took 52 days to rebuild the, the wall um, to Jerusalem. And these people, are the, the fear that they're giving themselves over to has them like giving over to dread, right? And so, and that happens with us too. If we're doing something together, one of us is going to have a bad day. One of us is going to forget the promises of God. One of us is going to struggle with that, that, that God inside of us that is, that is trying to survive, that little G God, the thing that's very comfortable, and, and we're feeling tugged and called to do something sacrificial or greater or to overcome something. Like, we're all going through that at different times and phases. And so we can't, he doesn't look at these people who are complaining and struggling and says, oh, you're now the enemy because we're not each other's enemy. Paul writes about this all the time. We are struggling people. We're going to struggle with this. We're going to wrestle with this for the rest of our time on earth. So Paul's solution to that is brilliant. Be gracious with each other. Be eager to forgive. Your battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's about this spiritual wrestling that we're all doing. And we're doing it at different stages and phases and times. And we don't get to control each other, but we get to love each other. That's true in your family. That's true in your church. If you have a healthy work environment, that's true in a work environment. And when we do that, I think that's probably the best example of the love of Jesus that we can be as a church is what do we do with those who are 
struggling. Someone said that to me once when I told them I was going to work and uh, help start churches and, and lead a healthy church. I said, I, I, the thing I can't stand about you Christians is that you shoot your wounded. I'm like, whoa. We do. If someone is struggling, we kind of treat them like, a, like they're wrong instead of they're just in process. Because we're all coming at this from different angles. Some of you have trauma in your life that you're just now getting over or maybe you're in the middle of it and you're trying to find your way. Some of you are facing broken ankle, severed toe, and all this other stuff. Like you're facing thing after thing after thing. And I, I want you to reject the lies from within that are telling you that you are somehow inadequate. That you're deeply flawed and not worthy of good things happening. That's just not true. That's a lie of the devil. Trying to get you to stay discouraged and to stop building. When we start treating each other like the enemy, that's where the toxic environment happens. Some of you have come from churches like that. There are bad churches out there. Some of you have been hurt by churches. Thank you for not giving up on the church. I, I love the saying that uh, the disciples didn't walk away from Jesus because of Judas. There's more problems that Nehemiah confronted. And Nehemiah addressed the things that he could. And he encouraged the people when he could. But every time he came back to one thing, there's a promise from God, and we're not going to waver. We're going to continue because, yes, there's opposition, and there's a promise from God. And the miracle of 52 days to rebuild the temple wall or the city wall is the fruit of remembering the promises of God in the face of opposition. We have promises of God. And I want to encourage you to know them. Lean into them. Write them down. Wrestle with them for the rest of your life. Because when opposition comes, this is the way to overcome as we lean into, we trust in the promises of God and when we do that it destroys the enemies that are inside of us destroys the enemies that are around us destroys the enemies that are coming from the outside because we live in a world that's going in a different direction so there's opposition all around us And I think, you know, as, as, as your pastor, as I pray for you, I, I, I kind of pray for us in this way. But I, I, want, I want us to long for the promises of God more than we long for the things of the world. Because a, a problem in society when it comes to God is, is that we, we don't want the promises of God. We want, we want other things. 
We want the things of this world. We want comfort and we want joy and we want laughter and we want easy. And like if you were to map out your ideal life, you probably wouldn't write any severing your tendon on your toe or a terminal illness or a divorce or addiction. You wouldn't write that into your story. But God redeems that and he uses that. We want comfort. God wants righteousness. And what is the God in your life is the one that you pursue. Do you sacrifice one for the other? The God you're killing on the altar of the other God. Are you willing to kill comfort in your life for the sake of the mission of God? Does your heart long for God's love to be known? Does your heart break for your neighbor, your family, or your friend who has no hope to face these types of oppositions and so they keep turning to the escapism of the world? Does your heart break enough for you to be willing to sacrifice your comfort for the sake of someone knowing the truth about God's love. Now, don't take this as if you're the Savior. You're not. Your job is to just love people. Jesus does the healing in his time, and when the people repent and they come to, we can't force people to change. It's one of the biggest things. I went through this addiction recovery training, and I counseled people through addiction for three years, and it's the most heartbreaking thing that you can't change people. I wish I could change people. Parents, we do this with our kids. When we see them in adulthood and they make mistakes, we go, oh, I told them that if they just did this, they wouldn't feel that. You can't change people. We just get to love them. Be wisdom in their life. Be kind. We don't change people. We just love them. And what you find is love is that fertile soil that change can grow in. It's the only thing. And when we tell people the truth about who God is, that in the midst of your, your struggle, your rebellion, I'm going to love you. We show them the way of Jesus. Nothing has taught me more about the love of Jesus in my life than me being forgiven by those who I've hurt the most. When I think of that, there's nothing more tangible in my life that tells me how much God loves me than when someone has loved me with the love of God that way. But these are the promises that I want us to long for over the things of the world. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It doesn't say blessed are those who hunger and thirst for comfort. It's blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you long for righteousness? Not, not perfection as the world would call perfect because the way God sees us in our brokenness is perfect because of the work of Jesus Christ. So any perfection we can't claim is because of Jesus. It's like our flaws are built into God's salvation plan, our mistakes. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger, 
for they will be filled. John 14, 23, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and will come to them and make our home with them. Do you long for that? The Father to, to come and make his home with you? To be in his presence? If you pray for these things, pursue these things, claim these promises, he will answer these are the things that if we go to him and we ask and we seek and we knock and we knock on the door of God and ask for the things that he's promised us, he will deliver them. The problem is we go to the door and we knock and we ask for things of the world that he hasn't promised us and then our very judgment of whether or, God, whether or not God is good, whether he exists or whether I'm worth anything to him is based on me asking God for the things of the world that he never promised me when the promises of God that he has promised me, do I really long for those things? This is the wrestling. Because if we're being honest, I would say sometimes. Sometimes I really long for these things. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I forget. But that's why we have this this relationship with God that is rooted in forgiveness, is that he is always inviting us back to get, pick up our sword, pick up a brick, and keep building. He's always inviting us back to do that because we are flawed humans. And we can't hold ourselves to some ridiculous religious standard to determine our value or our worth but we can set our eyes on the promises of God. And when opposition comes, we don't give up. We keep claiming the promises until we do give up. Then we ask for forgiveness because he promises that if we repent and ask for forgiveness, he is, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgive us from our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise from God. Psalm 910, those who know your name trust in you for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. He will never forsake you if you're seeking him for the promises that he has made. Hebrews 11:6. 6, and without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He rewards those who seek him. You may have all these ones that I've read so far, you may have learned this and focused on the first part. The first part is all about you doing. If you do this, God will do that. That's not the promises of God. The promises of God is the desire of your heart is to do this, and God will do that. Right? I'm, I say this to say, like, I, I, there was a stage in my faith where I looked at it and go, well, I'm not feeling the joy of God because I am not I am not hungry and thirsty enough or uh, I am not obeying the teaching enough or I don't trust in God enough or I don't have enough faith this is that type of twisted thinking is where prosperity gospel comes in and, and twisted theologies that come in that make you feel bad for not feeling good That's not the promises of God. The promises of God is as you seek him, he is there. You will find him. 
who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Psalm 103.5, Proverbs 8.17, I love those who love me and those who seek me find me. This is why in this 52-week series we ask you to cultivate a daily relationship with God where you pray and you, you spend time with God every day. Because if you're not feeling close to God, the thing you can do is spend time with God. You can't be close to anyone you don't spend time with. And so we do that through prayer and claiming the promises and wrestling with them. Because we've got to wrestle with these. And what will happen is the wrestling is the things that we want more than these things get exposed and they, and they become opposition. They become enemies and threats. And be careful because it can go nuclear and you can just say, to hell with the whole church thing. I'm done. Because there is a God in your life that is not willing to die. See, God has a dream for your life. He wants to conform us into being righteous and pure and more and more like Jesus. And then he wants to use us as a treasure, he calls it in John 6. He wants to use us as a treasure, a focal point, an illustration, an example, a conduit to show the world just how good he is. To invite people to know the love of God. And he wants to lavish upon us an even greater demonstration of his goodness. He has such great plans for us. And we have such pitiful and meager plans for ourselves in comparison. Let not the goal of our life be comfort. God has bigger dreams for us than that. Nehemiah, when he is faced with this opposition, he cried out to God for help claiming these promises. So when we say we believe we are God's people, that means we inherit these promises. God is with us. God is for us. God is good. And there's opposition in this world. And we are given the dwelling of God in us to have the courage and the strength to overcome the opposition, not by our own strength, but by leaning and trusting in the promises of God. And you may think, boy, that takes a lot of effort, but it doesn't. It takes a lot of putting your weapons down. It takes a lot of humility. It takes a lot of trust. It takes a lot of faith. It doesn't take a lot of fighting. It takes giving up and trusting God. If you notice what Nehemiah did with the mockery, and he didn't respond, in a way that was hard, because I know when you're accused, falsely accused of something, you want to defend yourself. But to say, God's going to handle that better than I could. I'm going to trust God. You're putting your weapons down. I'm going to ask the worship band to come back up and we'll pray. Let's face the reality, like last week. Let's face the reality there's an enemy out there.
not everyone is the enemy, but there are people trying to discourage us from being God's people. There is a system out there that's trying to discourage us from being God's people. But we have the promises of God and the very presence of God. And we get to overcome that. You're not in this alone. None of us are in this alone. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word and I thank you for your promises that you give us. I pray that as we, um, as we wrestle with the opposition that is coming at us, either from without, from within, or from beside, that uh, you would help us to respond to those by leaning onto your promises, trusting in you, not letting the critics change the game, change our focus, but we are we're wholly focused on becoming who you've created us to be and being your people, being your light in this world. Show us, God, these next steps for each one of us. Give us confidence to take steps of faith to trust in you. And when we take those steps of belief and faith, your promises are fulfilled. In Jesus' name.